Welcome to another episode, the 10th in the Back to Business series of podcasts. The Back to Business podcasts form part of the collaborative efforts of MLA, AWI, Sheep Connect New South Wales, Integrity Systems Co., with support from New South Wales DPI, Local Land Services and New South Wales Farmers Association. The Back to Business program has been developed in response to recent disasters and our content is aimed at helping farmers get back to business. Today, I'm joined by Simon Vogt. Simon is an agricultural consultant in, with rural directions in South Australia. Simon's area of expertise is in agribusiness and he has a wealth of experience in agricultural business analysis. And today we're going to, uh, we're going to discuss how to go about building long-term business resilience. We'll chat about cash flow, budgets, farm management, analysis of business performance, and how to navigate through the current time to a solid recovery. Welcome, Simon, and thanks for joining us on the Back to Business podcast. Thanks, Megan, and yeah, great to be involved in the Back to Business initiative. Let's start with first things first, I guess. Um, you know, many people have had a pretty tough time uh, with you know all manner of disaster. And I guess as, as business operators, what are our first priorities for, for both ourselves and our business as we sort of start to, you know, look towards a recovery? Absolutely. Many business owners and producers have been through a lot in the last um, two years and with some exceptionally challenging uh, dry seasons and drought conditions and then the uh, very strong and severe bushfires earlier this year and the traumatic experience and crisis that, that creates and so there's a lot to work through and we have to approach it in a, a logical order and and have some um, self-compassion to the journey because there's a lot to process after we've been through a traumatic experience such as a significant fire and so it's a matter of um, you know, crisis management and working through things um, in, a, in a logical order and recognising that it's going to take time to re re rebound from this um, crisis and, um, and once we're in a position to consider some longer term um, considerations to how we'll position our business. Um, then we need to move on to looking at setting some goals and developing plans and looking at it as uh, you know, taking the um, you know, crisis as being danger plus opportunity. And so once we've protected ourselves from the danger, there's then scope to look at the opportunity side and say, okay, how might I be able to reposition my business now to um, make the most of the recovery phase and position it well for the future? I think your point about recovery taking time is really important and sometimes we we're really a little bit eager to get back to business and and you know see things happening and and I know that there's been you know rain's fallen in a lot of parts of New South Wales and around the country not everywhere there's there's still some some areas of of the the country that are still doing it quite tough in terms of lack of rainfall but you know we've we've obviously you know we, we've grown some feed now the 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 landscape's recovered but we still need to think about taking time and, you know, and in thinking about how our business is going to, you know, take that time to recover is really important. And I, I just want to ask you to now to explore a little bit about how resilience comes out, comes about and what makes us and our businesses resilient? Yeah, 
Well, lots of elements to resilience and it's a learned skill set in, in many ways and we um, will be exposed to production shocks and business shocks in our in our um, journey as producers and as, as business operators and we have to look at developing a strong business model that has the capacity to withstand shocks and so resilience is not so much about building a business that is um, won't incur a shock because that's you know very difficult um, objective to achieve. We can mitigate some risks, but there are shocks that come along that are outside of our control that are difficult to mitigate. So we then have to look at how we um, bounce back following crisis or following a shock and um, there's lots to work through in that process and it does take time and with knowledge of producers that work through the pinery fire um, recovery which is more than four and a half years ago now and some of those producers that um, lost all of their fencing I know they've only you know, just recently finished the final amount of fencing and so it's been a four and a half year um, timeline and we need to be you know, both realistic in that timeline and not look to achieve everything at once and we also need to have the self-compassion to recognise that we've been through a traumatic experience and that will affect us individually very differently and not to be judgmental on ourselves and to let that process take time and then when we're ready to move on to the next stage of recovery, um, look for look to do some long, you know, short and long-term planning where we move our horizon from what might have been a day at a time or a week at a time or a month at a time, move our horizon to what could be a two-year, five-year, 10-year, 20-year horizon. I guess out of a lot of this adversity, um, you know, and, and really, really severe adversity that's been experienced, there comes opportunity to, to sort of, you know, almost adopt not necessarily a clean slate approach, but a, an approach where you can say, well, what are the opportunities? You know, is, is there an opportunity for us to refocus the direction of our business or the enterprise mix of our business? And, you know, there's, there's ways and means of going about evaluating the different elements that have comprised our business up to a point. Do you reckon now's a good time, you know, for people to say, well, you know, what do we do well and, and how can we, you know, build on that going forward to build a, build a, a bigger business or a better business or a, just a simpler business indeed? Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the you know, crisis in many ways equals danger plus opportunity. And so we have to protect ourselves from the danger and then move on to the opportunity side and that can be um, a perfect time to do a strategic review and a stock take of where we're at and look at our business with a, with the support of some external um, uh, support and independent support and say okay well what are our core strengths, what are some of our weaknesses, what are some of the um, opportunities for our business, what are some of the threats and then as a result of that we'll come up with the strategic priorities for our business. And we can look to, um, from those strategic priorities, we can look to then uh, review our business model and say, is our business model, is our grazing business model right for our resource base and our region and for our management skill set? Or um, you know, do we need to review our business model? And a business model is really how we create value, how we deliver that value and how we capture that value. And in a grazing context, 
we create value by converting fresh green grass into saleable red meat or wool, um, given that when we've got the capacity to grow fresh green grass, it's the, we can grow that for a cost of say 10 or 12 cents per kilo of dry matter, which is very cost effective in comparison to supplementary feeds that we've had to um, uh, invest in during the drought years. It might be 30, 40 or 50 cents. So our core business model is around um, growing and converting grass to red meat and wool and um, doing that with a, with a low overhead cost structure which uh, and 70% of overheads in a grazing business are driven by labour or labour related expenses. So it is a great opportunity to review our business model and see how it aligns with our resource base, uh, with our core values and with the profit driver framework that is fitting for farming businesses. Just on the profit driving framework, what are the key profit drivers in a, in a mixed farming or a, or a livestock uh, business? And how can we incorporate attention to these in our businesses going forward? You know, what's what's a really good way to, to get started on that and then, you know, really consolidate that going forward? For sure. And with um, key profit drivers, uh, there's an enormous amount of uh, profit drivers in red meat and wool businesses. And we could soon chalk up a great big long list if we started to think about all of the profit drivers um, and on a, on a micro level or a, a, um, a fine grain level. But when we um, review them in total and, and look to align them to a framework, there's really four pr uh, primary profit drivers that I like to talk about in a, in a grazing business um, that are relevant to all grazing businesses nationally or globally or all, all farming businesses um, nationally or globally. And the first of those primary profit drivers is gross margin optimization. And that's around creating revenue in a cost-effective manner. And so gross margin optimization, we could look at it at the whole of business level or the per hectare level. And it is simply revenue per hectare, less variable cost per hectare to get to a gross margin per hectare um, outcome. And optimising gross margins is around you know, the productivity piece around stocking rate and individual animal performance and achieving those goals in a low variable cost manner. So gross margin optimisation is the first really important key profit driver. And the next one is having what I call a low cost business model, which you could also say is having a low overhead cost structure. And given that 70% of overheads are driven by labour or labour-related costs, it's around having a business that has got a strong level of labour productivity and utilisation from energy invested. And as you've mentioned, there's sometimes we can overcomplicate our business model and our production system and over-diversify our enterprise mix and create unnecessary complexity. And that can come at the cost of labour productivity and efficiency. And so it's good to do a critical review of our business model and production system and how well it's designed to both optimise gross margins and achieve that in a low cost uh, business model manner. In addition to the labour considerations, low cost business model also reflects debt serviceability and a, a, a really good measure of debt serviceability is finance coverage ratio or EBIT coverage ratio. 
And EBIT stands for earnings before interest and tax. And it's essentially the engine room of our business because revenue less variable costs get us to gross margin or the first layer of profitability. Gross margin, less overhead costs and less depreciation get us to EBIT. So EBIT comes before financing costs. And if we look at having a whole of business EBIT, if, our, if we've got a business that creates $500,000 of annual um, earnings before interest and tax, so a $500,000 EBIT. And if we've got interest on debt um, of $125,000 um, and we haven't got any lease land in our business model, then we will have a finance coverage ratio of four to one because $500,000 EBIT is four times greater than $125,000 in financing costs. Four to one is a really robust, long-term, sustainable um, position on, on debt coverage or finance coverage. And in cases of businesses that are growing rapidly, um, there can be a, 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 you know, a situational element to where we position our business on finance coverage, depending on our risk appetite. And um, yeah, there'll be a number of businesses that are comfortable to go down to two to one on finance coverage ratio and then uh, build back up um, through making principal reductions over time. So it is situational, but it is a good measure on, um, on, on that debt serviceability. Um, the third primary profit driver is people and management because it takes an incredibly good manager and team of people to both create strong gross margins per hectare, but do it in a way that's uh, friendly on labour inputs and demand on overhead costs. And that's where business model design and having a production mix that best suits our resource base and people and management is the third primary profit driver. And then the fourth one is risk management, given the risks that we're exposed to around seasonal risks, around commodity price risks, around foreign currency risks and um, you know, global political um, influences, so there's plenty of risks and so it's around um, developing a business model that's got resilience and is high margin and low risk. Yeah, I guess that's, um, we live in a pretty risky environment in agriculture just by default, don't we? And, you know, building a little bit of, you know, risk management into the way that we, um, you know, send our business forwards, important and might not necessarily always be the highest return, but if it's, um, if it's giving you a little bit of buffering ability against risk, then there's some um, there's some you know positives in that space too. I guess. Absolutely. Sorry, keep going. Yeah, absolutely. And our you know our key weapon in a commodity business is to have a low cost of production, and having a low cost of production comes about by being highly productive at that gross margin optimization level, and then achieving it in a way which is cost effective on the overhead cost side. And whenever we add profit margin through enhancing gross margin optimization or reducing our overhead cost structure and doing those things sim simultaneously, whenever we add margin, profit margin to a commodity-based business, well, we reduce the risk profile of that business and add resilience and the capacity to withstand a production or business shock. As a livestock business, what sort of benchmarks and, and levels of production? You, you talk a little bit about the, the productivity that's important. So we, we need, you know, the, the labour efficiency to help drive the productivity. What about, you know, the, the actual productivity from our, our livestock? Like what kind, have you got any benchmarks that, 
that we can, you know, sort of pin up on the wall to aspire to as a as a livestock industry on on what our livestock should should be doing for us. For sure. If we look at the, and I'll answer this on a couple of different levels. If we if we look at gross margin optimization first, um, and you know, gross margin is going to be a combination of stocking rates um, per hectare times individual animal performance. Um, less variable costs is what's going to optimise gross margin, and. We need to be achieving gross margins per DSE in the $50 to $60 per DSE range in, in beef and sheep enterprises to set ourselves up to have, um, you know, the ultimate goal is to have a $40 EBIT per DSE and a $40 EBIT per DSE at optimum stocking rate for our resource base. But to, yeah, so to achieve a $40 EBIT as the end goal, we need that $50 to $60 of gross margin per DSE to get there. And when we look at the stocking rate piece, we need to be very mindful of land class and rainfall and those inter interactions. And the benchmarks are very different depending on land class. So in high rainfall, heavy soil type, we need to be shooting for north or for two DSE per hectare per 100 millimetres of rainfall. So if we're in a 600 millimetre rainfall environment, uh, 12 DSE per hectare would be reflective of that. If we're in a pastoral or lighter soil type, lower rainfall environment, those metrics are very different and are very subject to the underlying land class and they could be half to one DSE per hectare per 100 mil or less. There's sort of a sustainable stocking rate in those land classes that you need to adhere to and then focus on individual animal performance. And with that you know, individual animal performance, um, to land with that $40 EBIT, um, we sort of need to be you know, $50 to $60 on, on gross margin per DSE, to, you know, which means we've sort of got $10 to $20 per DSE that we can have allocated to overheads. The key metric, um, once we've you know, at our selected optimal stocking rate per hectare, the key metric to then drive um, drive the number to get to that 50 to 60 dollars of gross margin per DSE is our revenue per DSE. And in a uh, and we really need in a sheep system we need 100 dollars worth of revenue per DSE. So if we rate a breeding ewe and her followers in a dual purpose or prime lamb um, focused flock and we rate those ewes at two and a half DSE, well $100 of revenue per DSE means we need to be shooting for more than $250 worth of revenue per ewe. And in a beef system, if we're running a cow with heavy turnoff weight, we could rate those core breeding cows at 20 DSE and we need to get $80 worth of revenue per DSE. So 20 times 80 is $1,600 a head average revenue per breeding cow and that revenue side is really important um, to keep in mind in addition with optimal stocking rate for our land class and then if we get those two right and achieve that in a, in a cost effective way on variable costs in a 600 mil rainfall environment we will have set ourselves up for 600 to 700 dollars of gross margin per hectare. Simon, how many people across the, the countryside, and, and I know that you've done some significant studies um, on this, how many people are achieving those 
$250 per ewe or $1,600 per cow, um, you know, benchmarks? For sure. And if you look, yeah, most of the data sets at the moment, they're the uh, metrics that are achieved by what would be the top 20% producers in those data sets. And we need to be mindful that those data sets will always get a skewed sample to the uh, to the positive in terms of the sub. Whenever you take a benchmarking study, you're always getting a subset that's skewed to the positive side of of the industry. And so in reality, they might be the top five or 10% of producers that are achieving those metrics, but that um, doesn't mean that it's an unattainable task in terms of the, it's not things that are outside of your control to achieve those metrics. It's all management influence factors. And so there's significant opportunity and upside through consistent implementation in management to achieve these metrics. And they, um, you know, they, they're, um, they're real. And um, whilst they are, might be aspirational for some businesses with their current starting point, they are real and possible. And we need to look at them as being attainable and um, as opposed to being unrealistic. And, and then just think about, okay, well, what elements are there? production system will allow us to achieve that outcome and how do we need to design our production system so that we do set um, the system up and our livestock up to achieve those outcomes. Yeah, so it's certainly possible. And, and I guess, you know, the starting points, you know, to, pull, to pull, pull the low hanging fruit off the tree in terms of, you know, where are the greatest gains to be made? And um, I guess at the moment, because we've, you know, there is a lot of green grass growing in a lot of places, there's a lot of people looking to restock. And we know that that's, that the costs of restocking at the moment are high and that's putting pressure on, on cash flow and, and the business in itself. Can we talk a little bit about how we, we go about managing that going forward? Because, you know, we, we, a lot of people have reduced numbers and we've talked to a little bit. Of, next week we'll talk about um, flock rebuilding and, you know, using management to help sort of fast track that. But, you know, in terms of restocking and, and buying in livestock or, or indeed running below capacity, there's different pressures on our business that come from that. Can we just explore that a little bit in terms of, of how we can manage that and how we can be, I guess, on the front foot in terms of, of how long we can, you know, look towards that sort of placing that pressure on our business? For sure, and yeah, we are certainly at one of the biggest cash flow crunch points in the in the recovery journey from the last two years. And often during a drought, um, cash flow can be okay in terms of um, we can be selling down breeding stock inventory, and so we've actually had cash flow to work with. Uh, but the challenge is if we've operationalised that cash flow um, as opposed to putting it aside for the rebuilding journey. And so if we're now got very different um, and we've got fodder flow and feed available, then we have to look at the um, restocking, um, restocking and looking at how, how best to achieve that. And we have to, and cash flow and available cash might be a constraint. So we need to do a critical review and have a look at a marginal return on capital and and look at, okay, well, this, is, this will be the cash flows for the next 12 months or the next two years or three years if we work with our current stock numbers and build up and this is what stock we'll have available for sale versus um, doing another set of numbers to say, okay, if we tip in 
500,000 of additional flow in increased um, income and increased uh, inventory build up for future years. So uh, we need to look at those scenarios and we need to be um, careful and mindful of which um, constraint we choose and there might be scope to say um, there's a strong business case here to uh, um, look for additional financing to get the stock numbers that we need, uh, but we need to make sure that we're balanced in how we do those numbers and we we truly look at um, realistic revenue levels and realistic uh, expenses and outgoings and look at a journey um, of, of uh, with or without additional um, capital provided. But there's you know, definitely very likely to be a strong business case in regions that have got fodder flow for um, the, the business case for getting access to additional capital to more quickly build up that inventory recovery and to be able to convert fodder flow while it's fresh green and vegetative into saleable product. And so definitely the big cash flow point and it's requiring you know, some next level cash flow management and intensity. And I think it's good to look beyond just a 12 month cash flow and look at a, a ideally a three year cash flow in when you're doing a current analysis on, on, on stock rebuilding. And which leads into um, the importance of having a really good cash flow template to do that that is assumptions based and can be easily and quickly updated and can also be you know, transparent in terms of what the assumptions are. And, Often that cash flow development can be underdone and can only be truly understood by the person who developed it. And what I like to see in a cash flow template is the assumptions laid out clearly in an Excel-based type um, format um, that's highly visible and transparent. And you can see, okay, there's $50,000 worth of lamb sales in September. That's driven by 400 head at um, you know, x kilograms of carcass weight times y you know, dollars per kilo so that it's all relevant and logical and someone else can um, read it and, and cross-check it and interpret it which is valuable for finance providers and valuable for management purposes and for when when you're working with a trusted advisor as well so it's not really a cookie cutter type cash flow um, template that you're talking about there. You're talking about something that's quite specific to the business in terms of you know, incorporating different elements of, of costs and, um, and income, but really important that it's a, almost a living document, something that you can continue to review and, and adjust and, and having those fields that are a little bit um, you know, adjustable, i.e. price and, and number of kilos, will does allow that that kind of um, flexibility and, and you know continuity of, of you know reviewing those cash flows. So, how do we go about getting a really good template? Is that something you've got to you know work on yourself, or you know are there advisors around that that are able to provide you know those quality like level of quality type templates? Certainly, um, advisors that would have an, a number of different cash flow templates that they could use and, and customise um, to clients' uh, scenarios and circumstances. And uh, but it is really important that the cash flow development process is owned by the producer and that they drive it. And uh, given that, it's 
uh, it's good for producers to uh, look at some examples, but then build their own template and build it up um, themselves. And that way they're in a strong position to drive it and own it. And the challenge of using an external provider um, can be if we, if we don't, as the producer, choose to own it and grab hold of it. So it's uh, you know, it could be a case of looking at some examples and looking at what a good cash flow looks like in terms of how it can be built on assumptions and transparent assumptions and then customising something that's fit in for our business. And then through that customisation process, we'll, we'll, um, we'll take ownership then of the cash flow model and we'll get more use out of it for management purposes. It takes a special kind of person to really love an Excel spreadsheet. So I can understand that, you know, for some farmers, it's quite a daunting process. And, you know, yours truly, he doesn't love an Excel spreadsheet quite as much as um, the next person. So it's something, you know, again, it's got to be workable by the sounds of things, as well as um, containing sufficient information for the um, all of the purposes that you require for yeah, exactly. It's a delicate balance between, um, you know, it's got to be practical and simple and easy to use. Um, it's got to be laid out in a logical manner. It's got to be laid out in a manner which finance providers will be able to understand and they can check off their metrics. And my experience has been that it's worthwhile to have um, an investment in developing a, a cash flow template and that might include getting some support from a trusted advisor or um, uh, independent consultant to assist with that process and that it actually creates a template that then is um, able to be used for multiple years and is able to be used in a beneficial way for decision making because we've got three things to balance up at the moment. We've got cash flow considerations in terms of cash out and cash in but we've also got long-term capacity building, which is reflected in management profit. And while we're, we could make a decision at the moment to sell inventory because we need the cash flow, but it's actually removing future capacity from the business um, that's actually needed to optimise long-term profitability. And so we're at this really delicate point of balancing cash flow considerations inventory positioning and future capacity considerations and, and so it's really cash flow management profit balance sheet where it's a really delicate balance uh, between those three pillars of, of financial literacy and performance. Yeah, it's it's a, a cross between we need the cash flow now but we need the livestock to drive our, our business forward, you know, for longevity. Speaking of longevity, and you talked a little bit about that just a second ago, we're just about we're out of time, but I, I wanted to just touch on the opportunities that exist for, for businesses who might be interested in succession planning. And I know succession planning is a topic that's as big as it is, you know, um, you know, as, as any other topic. It's a big topic. Have, have we, just a few um, morsels of um, wisdom in terms of, of how to go about building um, a succession plan um, you know, in the face of, of opportunity that arises from disaster, there might be some opportunities for people out there who are going, well, you know, I'm, I'm ready to, to hang up my, my boots, so to speak, but, um, you know, the business needs to, to continue on. Have you got any thoughts on that that, that, um, that our audience can take away from it? 
For sure. And yeah, absolutely right in terms of succession planning being a huge topic with uh, uh, a number of layers and complexity uh, to it. And as a principle, it's imp really important to look at succession as a process and not an event. And too often it can be seen as an event and you go work through this event and and then it's done, or why haven't we worked yet worked through this event? And, and whereas really succession is a process in creating a perpetual farming business, and that process involves developing management capability in the next generation. If there is a keen and willing next generation, it includes preparation for um, an independently funded retirement for the enabling generation. It's um, and you know, there's a lot there's a lot to work through and so I guess some golden rules are that we can't have un there can't be unrealistic expectations from either generation the provisioning for independent retirements and balancing things up between farming and non-farming siblings needs to start early um, the transition and development of management capability takes time it's a process that isn't complete until both generations are financially viable. Uh, and that using superannuation as a channel to have an independent fully funded retirement has merit and, the, and it has merit because it's tax effective on the way in, tax effective while it's there and tax effective on the way out. And I think the biggest thing to be mindful of is not to underestimate the management succession and that is a investment in building management skill set and ability of the next generation over time and that's where uh, having a process such as an advisory board where the next generation are involved and engaged in that process they'll get experience and exposure to good business management over time around you know, opportunity assessments and business case development and communication and financial literacy and people management and examples of crisis management and self-awareness and all those skills which are really important. It's so dynamic and there's so many elements to it and there it requires a high level of management skill to do well and that's where the management succession journey is um, a really critical part of that whole vision of creating a perpetual agribusiness. Wise words. Simon, I've really enjoyed our chat this afternoon and um, and I've I've learned a lot and, and I do hope that our audience have found the um, the practical side of, of what you've spoken about today in terms of you know understanding your business health, your business structure, your plans, where, what your risk is, what your key profit drivers are and what they're doing. I really hope people have um, found some um, you know, tangible information there that they can take away and apply to their own businesses, again, to, to help them get back to business following on from the disaster. So thanks for joining us today. And um, yeah, we'll catch up with you soon. Excellent. Thanks, Megan. And thanks for the opportunity to contribute to the Back to Business initiative.